Welcome to Drilling Deep. I'm your host, John Kingston. You know, you need to drill to get oil, and you need to drill into industry experts to get great information. We don't drill for oil here on Drilling Deep, but we do talk about it. And we talk to a guest every week to drill for those great insights. This week, our guest is Donna Lem of IMC. They're one of the biggest drayage companies in the country. She's chief commercial officer, and IMC is a big user of chassis. We're going to get her perspective on the market for chassis, which earlier this year got squeezed just like so many other markets in the supply chain did. Okay, let's talk about oil. I've got some good news for diesel consumers, particularly if you're on the East Coast. Let's say north of the Washington, Baltimore area, but certainly all the way up into New England. Diesel prices at the pump in those areas are easily above $6 per gallon. New England, maybe a little below that. South in the New York area might be a little below $6, but $6 is kind of the midpoint of that range. Mind you, that is happening even as the national average retail price is a little over $5.30 per gallon. That's the national price of the Department of Energy and its, in, and its Energy Information Administration posted Monday. That's also the basis for most fuel surcharges. But that number does include those crazy New England prices and those of California, which are always higher than the rest of the country. In the Gulf Coast, for example, the EIA posted a price of about $4.89. Why then is there good news? The East Coast diesel price is set by several factors. There's the diesel price on the CME commodity exchange. But then there's the spot market price for barges and pipeline quantities in the East Coast, and those are traded among traders. They trade that price as a differential to the CME number. So if I want to sell a quantity of diesel, I would not say to a potential buyer, I'll sell it to you at $5 per gallon. I'd, sell, I'd say to you, I will sell it to you at CME plus 10 cents, for example. And then the final price is set on the basis of whatever the CME ultra low sulfur diesel price comes in that day. So let's say it's the settlement. That's called the settlement plus 10 cents. That number, for example, in my case, 10 cents, is what the traders talk about all day back and forth. And here's what I can tell you. S&P Global Commodities Insights, which houses the activities long known as PLATs, had some really solid reporting on it this week. It said that since November 8th, that number, known as the differential or DIFF for short, has dropped anywhere 32 to 52 to 85 cents per gallon, depending on lo what location in the East Coast is being measured. First of all, to drop that much shows you how high it was to begin with. In normal times, that spread might be CME plus 10 cents. But as we know, these aren't normal times. You know what happens when the price of something gets really high? People want to sell into that market. So Platts also reported several ships coming into the East Coast market and discharging a lot of diesel. They even published the names of some of the ships. The market is getting wind of that, and they know that the East Coast squeeze is getting some relief with real physical barrels of diesel. Other good news. You know how we heard that we were going to run out of diesel in 25 days? As we've talked about before, that comes from the day's cover figure, which is the amount of distillates in inventory divided by average daily consumption. The consumption, by the way, has now fallen about three or four weeks in a row. What you have left is a number of days that can be covered by inventories alone, but refineries are pumping away. Last week in the U.S., they operated at 92.9% of capacity. The last time they operated that high in the second week of November was back in 2004. So the day's cover number, 
which was below 26 days just a few weeks ago and led to that whole we're going to run out of diesel in 25 days talk. That number is solidly above 26 at 26.6 days for all non-jet dis- distillates. And those non-jet distillates are about 85 to 90% diesel. So there may be some relief on the way. Again, I want to stress that the main component of the price of diesel will always be the price of crude. But that's down about $6 per barrel in less than two weeks. And, cr- and after crude, though, the spread between crude and diesel in those spot markets is the most important component of the price. And as I spelled out here, that is definitely on the way down on the East Coast market. So to circle back to what I said before, there could be some good news on the way. We're going to move on here now on Drilling Deep. When the supply chain crisis began at whatever date you want to use it to, I probably everybody has a different date. It hit everything. It hit trucks. It hit rail cars. It hit shipping berths. And it hit things as mundane as pallets. And one other thing it hit big time, chassis in the intermodal sector. Our guest today is going to speak about the state of the chassis market and what her company is seeing in it. They're one of the largest users of chassis markets, if not the biggest. She's Donna Lem. She's the chief commercial officer of Dreyage Giant IMC. And we want to welcome her to Drilling Deep. Donna, welcome. Thank you so much, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So what the chassis world went through, I'll say last year, I don't know when you'd consider it to, to have started and really probably hasn't totally ended, but what it went through with that incredible supply squeeze on chassis, have you ever seen anything like that before? No, I've never seen anything like that before. I think we were very well aware that we had a problem in the chassis provisioning model in the United States, or models, I should say, and there was a great need to take a look at it. Um, we had actually been warning people that we needed to take a look at some of the chassis provisioning um, deficits, um, restrictions that existed. But as far as seeing something like that before, no, it, it was certainly a first. So these warnings were pre-pandemic. You saw some fundamental issues in the way that the chassis market operated prior to the pandemic? Absolutely, John. Absolutely. I'll take it back to even 2015. You can remember labor shortage crisis. Every time we ever have these huge ebbs and flows, and we have them, they, they sometimes were even weather related. But uh, in 2018, uh, our inland markets were, were basically on the ground everywhere. And there's a lot of finger pointing when things go wrong. And so we began to really, really peel it back, try to understand what the problems were. There were a multitude of them back then. But what we found was the most actionable item. And I think that's the key. You can't always solve all the problems. um, But if there was one thing that you could do that could perhaps enhance fluidity, what would it be? And chassis were front and center. They were front and center uh, way before the pandemic hit. Right, and fluidity is the word that people in the chassis world use a lot. It just essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to give my my uh, nickel definition of it, which would just be the ability of chassis to easily move through the system uh, quickly away from those who have used their services or used their capabilities into somebody who needs them. Would, would, does, does that sound like a fluidity definition to you? You know, we all use the word fluidity, um, not just chassis. We use it um, as motor carriers. We use it as railroads. And you said the key word, John. We are a system. We're a system of stakeholders, shippers, um, ocean carriers, motor carriers, chassis providers, railroads. We are a system. And so um, that was the right word. 
um, to use. So um, in, in terms of fluidity, it simply means moving moving goods forward to continue to flow, if you will. Um, and so that's the objective. That's why we all come to work. And it's when things get um, so congested and so tough that we begin to stop and try and find new ways that we can do things. But the number one objective is to enhance flow. So I want to talk about solutions to the problem. And you have a program called Chassis Choice. Uh, I will tell you that I don't know all the details of it, but clearly I, it seems to be at the core of your marketing strategy and efficiency strategy going forward. What is chassis choice? Chassis choice simply means the ability to use a chassis anywhere, anytime, any chassis, no restrictions. And you may say, well, how does that help you as a motor carrier? We believe fundamentally that a driver should be able to stay with the wheels. Think about it. A chassis is a metal frame with wheels. It is a critical component. We believe as this critical component, it is in fact a utility, a necessary component. Nowhere else in the world has anyone taken these wheels and separated them apart from the driver. So we are an advocate for the driver to stay with their chassis, chassis choice. In markets that have separate, um, we'll call them operational models. We see this not only in the interior, but some to this day, terminals, gate terminals, um, gateway port terminals, still have a need for steamship lines to provide chassis um, at the terminal. And so what happens there is we're saying at all of these places, inland terminals, port gateway terminals, we should be the have the ability as truckers on behalf of our shippers to go in and retrieve any chassis. Does that make sense? Yeah, let, let's point out here that under that system, the, the truck driver uh, would, would, who might own the tractor would not own the chassis. But I guess it would change things that right now as a, as, as a driver finishes his or her run, they are expected to give the chassis back into the chassis pool probably like immediately, correct? And what you're envisioning is... No. no? Okay, go ahead. You tell me. So it, it's complicated because there's a multitude of models. There are, you know, ideally that trucker would have the ability to stay with the chassis, have the ability to own that chassis. We see private chassis, meaning trucker-owned chassis, throughout the United States, but it's still very um, minimal. Some markets more than others. New York, New Jersey, uh, perhaps having upwards of 50% private-owned chassis, meaning the trucker owns the chassis. And, and then other models, whether they be gray pool models or shipper um, models, they're different, uh, again, business models across the U.S. What's important? Where is it that we do not have a choice? Where is it there that we have this issue of restriction going on? Interior well, of the United States? I was going to say, who puts the restrictions in place? What, what is, why can you have 50% in the New York, New Jersey Harbor area and have significantly lower percentages elsewhere? What's, wh who's making the rules that result in such a wide divergence? So that's an excellent question, John. Let's take the Dallas market, for example. Uh, in Dallas, um, it, we have a couple of different operating models by our railroads. Some railroads are what we call mounted or wheeled facility, meaning when the train comes in, that train comes in, they're looking for wheels. They have agreements with ocean carriers to provide uh, chassis provisioning when the train comes in. 
and they want to immediately mount that that container on a chassis. We have partial, uh, partially operated where they're both grounded and wheeled facilities, and then we have uh, grounded facilities. You asked the question, who puts restrictions on? What happens is that ocean carriers contract with certain IEPs to ensure that their chassis are mounted when the train arrives with their containers. This can be very, very restrictive, um, especially, let's say, in a market like Dallas. Dallas has only two um, major providers of chassis. The Great Pool no longer exists in the Dallas market. That train comes in. Train doesn't know if that container is a door move for an ocean carrier or CY merchant haulage move um, where the shipper or motor carrier would be responsible. And all of a sudden there are no chassis. Well, what happens? The motor carrier and the shipper has to wait until that color chassis is available and accessible. And that is the restriction um, that we're talking about. Another word for restriction is box rules. Can't look it up. It's not in a, in a dictionary anywhere. Um, but it is an understood restriction where the ocean carrier box must stay with that particular IEP or chassis provider uh, for usage. And these are the restrictions we're talking about. Can you define I, can you, two definitions I think our audience might need, IEP and gray pool? Intermodal equipment provider, which is just a big word for chassis provider. Gray pool, the concept of a gray pool simply means that the chassis are gray um, in that they could be red, white, and blue. But for the user, all are accessible, all are interoperable, any chassis at any time. And yes, it's true, John. Um, our company has also championed gray pools. Um, we have been a champion of gray pools since 2010, 11, when ocean carriers got out of the chassis business, we believe that truckers should have the ability to stay with chassis. We believed in a cooperative of truckers um, to provide chassis. Not everybody can afford to have their own chassis. They just can't. What's, so the, what's the cost of a new chassis? I mean, if I was a truck trucker and I wanted to buy a new chassis, how much is that going to put me back? Well, that's a $10 million question. $10 million um, for a chassis. Oh, is that no, no. It just means it's a lot. It's a lot. And, 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 you know, so if you asked me that question a year ago, you know, it might have been $12,000, and today it could very well be double that. Really? Okay. And then, and then it, you know, is there a, a robust market for used chassis as well? There's a robust uh, market for anything with a metal frame and wheels. Um, they have been that scarce. Uh, there has been um, the issue of M&R, maintenance and repair. Where are the chassis? There's an issue of repositioning um, chassis. Inevitably, if they are available, are in the wrong place at the wrong time, um, which is, you know, an interesting subject all on its own. All right, so let's, let's go back to chassis choice. You're a significant provider of chassis. Would you describe yourself as the largest? And whether you're the largest or second largest or third largest, you're certainly up there. So what can you do? What kind of leverage can you put into the chassis market to realize some of these changes that you seek? Well, first of all, John, you know, we are not, um, you know, we are not the largest chassis provider. We are the largest drainage company in the United States. Right, right. I'm sorry. We are a champion. Yeah. 
Yeah. All right. Keep, keep going. So, okay. So, so as the largest drainage company, uh, what can you do? So as the largest drainage provider, we have been um, a huge advocate, as I said, of private wheels where we can, where we have access to them. Um, but uh, we are also very, very heavily indoctrinated in the interior of the United States. This is where we were founded. Our home and our headquarters are here in Collierville, Tennessee, right here in Memphis, Tennessee. And so we have been championing uh, choice. And we have also been championing gray interoperable pools so that we can go. We talked earlier about the system. Memphis, for example, is a system. Five class one railroads call. We bring in freight from the east. We bring in uh, freight from the west, from the Gulf, and we bring in freight from Canada. All of these um, containers, international marine containers, when they hit, they need a container. Uh, they need a chassis. And as a provider in Memphis, with this need to serve, remember, both wheeled and grounded facilities, remember the restrictions I told you about? As the largest provider in Memphis, we were very hesitant to deploy private chassis because the restrictions were so great. I remember one railroad who is grounded, who basically says you have choice at our grounded railroad. I had to explain to them. Our drivers just don't go in and out of that one railroad. Think about it. That import may be coming in from a Western railroad, the UP or the BM, that import container, which does have restrictive use, by the way. Um, this thing called box rules, which are restrictive uh, rules, have been embraced by the railroads because they're contractual arrangements to use these chassis. So they're gate rule restrictions, too. You can't outgate from that railroad on the wrong chassis. They'll make you stop and get unloaded until you're on the right color chassis. Um, the UP today has this uh, initiative. Private chassis are not allowed on the terminal. No cherry picking. So we're going uh, at this. I mean, this is a complicated subject. So let's look at Memphis. Why do we advocate gray pools? Why wouldn't I say, like, tomorrow I'm going to a private um, chassis fleet totally because that system, because our drivers serve our shippers all class, class ones, five railroads, regardless of their operating model. And so every single railroad, except this one that I'm telling you about that said, you know, open arms, come in with whatever chassis you want. And quite frankly, there are no gate rules here. Chassis choice. Okay, why why would a railroad care? I mean, as you noted, um, yeah, I guess you said it was Union Pacific that seems to be out on its own requiring uh, requiring certain regulations on chassis. The others are far more open the, to align themselves kind of with what you're advocating. What what, what is the, what are the benefits and the drawbacks to uh, let's say one company being out there with its own rules? So, John, this is also very important. Why would the UP do this? The UP feels, I mean, I don't want to speak for the UP. I, again, this is my opinion. Um, the UP has agreements with ocean carriers to provide chassis when the train arrives. The UP does not want to get into the chassis provisioning game. Um, ask them. And I encourage you to ask them, why have you done this? Why no cherry picking? Why won't you allow a private chassis to come in? Let's hold those accountable for the agreement with the railroad. 
The agreement is that ocean carriers are to have chassis available when the train arrives. Uh, again, John, uh, I cannot speak for a railroad. I encourage you to interview them. But what's happening is, uh, as we understand it, the accountability is for ocean carriers and their aligned IEP to have adequate supply. The benefit to the railroad would be to allow anybody in, um, no restrictions. Why? Get rid of some of this uh, congestion that's on your railroad, the millions and millions of dollars to the shippers on storage because we've got grounded and stacked containers that are not accessible. Everybody would win if we just take all these restrictions off. Why won't they do that? Again, it's a labor issue. It is um, a space and scale issue. These trains keep coming in. They want balance. Uh, I would ask them, uh, why wouldn't we take, I will call them, the restrictions or handcuffs off? Um, I, I can only surmise that they're doing this because they're not responsible for the chassis provisioning when the train comes in. Let's talk about chassis supply in general. Uh, chassis were the subject of a fairly significant set of tariffs on Chinese chassis handed down by the federal government a couple of years ago. Um, from all indications, that probably tightened supply. That's the whole idea then. And you you talked yourself about the price of chassis being maybe doubled over the last year or two. Uh, how much has the uh, Chinese char- Chinese? It's a it's a tongue twister. The Chinese chassis tariffs impacted the supply of chassis for somebody like you. You know. The, the tightening or the awareness of, of the, um, I guess, inability to immediately access more chassis from China started with the Chinese tariffs. There were other implications that, that happened after that. Um, and perhaps the original intention was the tariffs on steel. Um, but as things progressed, the timing could not have been worse. I, I talked to you uh, about um you know, 2018, 2019, as we went into 2020 um, and COVID hit, um, the need for chassis just because of sheer demand became front and center. Absolutely an impact on supply. But as we, you know, began to look at, all right, we've got a supply issue. We cannot solve this overnight. You saw many looking to ulterior um, sourcing Mexico, for example, um, even Eastern Europe as, as options, can't just immediately find manufacturing. Um, Pratt manufacturer here in the United States, we had um, some manufacturing that was going on, but it couldn't supply the country's need. So let's just use logic. How do we take the supply that we have and better use what we have? And then, and that's that's at the heart of of chassis choice. So let me ask you one final question. You look at what whatever the worst days were of the chassis squeeze. I'm not sure when you would think those were, you know, over the last 12 months or so. How much has it eased, John? So I was out in LA last week, and it has clearly eased. I mean, it is very related to demand. Um, but if you came here um, to Memphis, we still had a critical shortage uh, in Memphis, Dallas. We had 4,000 containers in Dallas on the ground 30 days ago. We have one major railroad who has evacuated some of that congestion problem, but we have another major railroad who's still on its uh, needs. Um, so it's very important that we understand the United States is very different, that this supply crisis has simply moved 
from gateway to gateway, and then inevitably into the interior of the United States, where we have um, some of the challenges that I was sharing with you about different operating models. And, and these restrictions have just caused um, immeasurable damage. Yeah, so much focus on the West Coast. Uh, and what you're saying is the problem there may have disappeared, but that didn't mean it disappeared in the entire country, correct? Amen to that, John. Um, we're living it. Speaking about the West Coast, uh, do you have any odds on the IL, ILWU and their labor negotiations and how you think they're all going to re be resolved or, or maybe not I resolved? Do. I do not. Um, having lived through um, several um, several strikes in my career, you know, um, look, this is something that we could perhaps um, plan for the worst and uh, be as prepared as we possibly can be. And I think, you know, you see your shippers um, doing that today. Um, minimizing risk wherever they can. Uh, we've learned uh, through COVID and through these issues of strikes, uh, we have to maintain some kind of flexibility, be as nimble as we can be. Um, so I'll leave that one um, to um, the experts, John, and just tell you that we are, again, just preparing as best as we can to be as flexible as we can. Uh, we have services throughout the United States and uh, certainly see this mitigation of risk uh, and have been seeing it for quite a, quite a while now, um, starting many, many months ago uh, with some of these, uh, the, the sheer demand in the South Atlantic gateways that we serve and certainly the Gulf as well. All right. We want to thank Donna Lem. She is the chief commercial officer of IMC, one of the biggest drainage providers. I'm sorry that I made a mistake earlier and called you a chassis provider. We were so busy talking about chassis. I almost forgot that you're a, a buyer of chassis services, not a provider. So anyway, and uh, as things move on, maybe we'll have you back to Drilling Deep. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, John. Enjoyed it very much. So you've been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of Freightways TV. You can find us simply by going on to Freightways TV, clicking on the drop down that says shows and looking for Drilling Deep. We've got the coolest intro of all the Freightways TV shows. I challenge anybody to, to beat me on that one. I've been your host, John Kingston, and please join us again. <laughs> <laughs>